You're listening to Soul Roadmap, episode number six. Welcome to Soul Roadmap Podcast. Each week, you'll hear strategies and inspiration to take action and live life better. Hi, I'm Dina Cataldo, lawyer, coach, and entrepreneur. This podcast is your roadmap to creating more success in your life, business, and relationships. Let's get started. Today's guest has family ties to the West and East and is here to share with us her new book, Japanism. It's all about how we can incorporate the essence of Japanese traditions in ways that can make our lives better. During our conversation, we talked about accountability and structuring our life in ways that allow for these traditions to work in our lives. So I've linked to my accountability roadmap in the show notes. The Accountability Roadmap walks you step-by-step to help you create awareness about how you use your time and begin prioritizing. No more feeling like you're bouncing from one thing to the next without thinking. This roadmap will help you live more intentionally. You can get it at dinacataldo.com forward slash episode six. Now on to our guest. Erin Nini Longhurst is an author, food and travel blogger, private chef, and a digital and social media consultant based in London. Her blog, Island Bell, was featured as one of the top food blogs in the UK in Blogosphere magazine in 2017. As a social media consultant, she works with charities, nonprofits, and foundations at Social Misfits Media to help them create social media strategies. She's now the author of Japanism, a lifestyle book beautifully designed to make reading it as relaxing as implementing its relaxation strategies. All right, let's get to the interview. Well, hi, Erin. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, well, I'm so happy that you're here. I came across your book, Japanism. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, yes, yes. All yes. right. And it's uh, it's such a lovely book. It's I saw that it had this amazing cover is what attracted me at first. I know the illustrations here are lovely too. I loved the idea of talking more about practicing mindfulness and incorporating all those different habits into our daily life. And I thought, what a more beautiful way than to create a book all about the cultural significance of these mindfulness tips and habits that have been absorbed into daily life. And I wanted to ask you just to introduce yourself before we start talking about the book and tell us what you do. Yes, so I'm Erin. I am the author of Japanism. I grew up, so I'm half English and half Japanese. I actually grew up in New York mostly. But in the the past few years, I've been uh, living and working in London. I work with charities, mostly around sort of digital and social media and storytelling. Through that, I started blogging about food. um, And that also included some travel and lifestyle tips as well. Uh, But a lot of that would really connect back to uh, my upbringing in Japan, my sort of family and, uh, you know, I'd go back and visit them every year. That's how kind of the book came around. I kind of wanted to bring all these kind of beautiful philosophies and practices and traditions and, you know, this aspect of mindfulness and, and elements of Japanese culture that I thought were so beautiful. And I wanted to kind of share those in, in the book. And they come across beautifully. It's a very relaxing read. It's something that you can get through pretty easily but it's also filled with step-by-step instructions to incorporate these things into your life and how-tos, which I was pleasantly surprised about that because it's one thing 
getting a concept and, and understanding it, but it's another thing being able to be told step-by-step step how to practice it and how to incorporate it into your life. So I thought that was lovely. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I think a lot of it was really wanted to focus on this lifestyle element. I think a lot of uh, stuff out there at the moment has been very kind of academic, um, kind of inaccessible. So the whole point and, you know, what I was really wanted to get across with this book is, you know, how to incorporate these elements of Japanese culture and to just to, in easy step-by-step -step ways, but just to make it a little bit more accessible and approachable. Your book seems to be in honor of the memory of your grandfather, but you, you actually talk about your grandparents, your aunt, your mom. Can you tell us a little bit about how they influenced your life? Definitely. Um, you know, I, I grew up uh, in New York with my mother mostly, um, but I never thought my family were particularly traditional until I was writing the book and I realized, oh, you know, my grandmother is a calligrapher and, and one of my aunts does tea ceremony and the other does flower arranging. So yeah, they definitely had a massive impact and influence in my life and particularly my grandfather. He was a businessman and, you know, during the week he would work extremely hard, but at the weekend we'd kind of really take the time to kind of connect and unwind and relax and he was a temple elder as well so a lot of that kind of balance he had in his life in terms of you know hectic city job but this kind of very spiritual mindful side um yeah definitely influenced me um quite a bit what is a temple elder can you describe what his responsibilities would be so yeah it really um varied some of it was to do more with kind of uh giving advice um around you know how things how things are run and how to kind of connect you know, the, the workings of the temple with the local community, but also to do with, um, you know, a lot of it is very kind of humbling in terms of, you know, helping to clean and again, kind of these kind of overarching advisory roles, but also a very kind of, you know, getting your hands dirty, kind of volunteering, being really embedded in the community. So mm. was there what, you know, a lot of people talk about writing a book, they, you know, have big plans, they, you know, know that there's a book in them. What made you decide that you had to write a book? Well, I've been writing quite a bit for a few years, just through my blog, so little bits and pieces. Um, and it was always my life kind of ambition and dream to put this all together in a book. But through my blog, my editor actually kind of reached out and said, you know, I think this is something that a lot of people are really interested in. Um, she'd been following my blog for a while and she's basically kind of came to me with this idea, you know, it was really led by this sort of big appetite they were seeing in terms of people wanting to learn from other cultures. So, you know, the big sort of hugger movement. Um, there's another book in the series called Lagom, which is uh, around Swedish lifestyle. Um, and I think a lot of people are getting really curious to know what others are doing and, and how they might be able to incorporate aspects of other cultures into their lives. So it, it kind of came about kind of as a collaboration. I knew um, I always wanted to write this book. I always wanted to write about all these different practices, but it was that kind of seeing this whole movement um, and appetite for it really, that really kind of made it possible. I did want to talk about food, speaking of appetite, because I saw your food blog and I was quite impressed. And it looks like you have dinner parties, you are you do food photography. So there is this uh, entire 
area of your life that seems devoted to that kind of pleasurable experience, that communal experience. Can you tell us how that came about? Definitely. Um, I, you know, my, my mother is an excellent cook and I, I would kind of grow up eating her food. The time we'd spend together would really be around cooking and preparing meals together. So my love for that really came from the time, it, you know, that the, just the activity and the practice of doing it and creating food um, really kind of reminded me of being around family and, and loved ones. And I think that's where my love for it originally started. Um, but I find cooking extremely relaxing. It's what I do at the end of the day to, to unwind. Um, and I love the kind of communal aspect of it, bringing people together in Japanese culture in particular, I think there's a lot of focus around the, you know, the symbolism in food and you know, eating together. I think it's a, it's a massive part of it. So I think that's uh, definitely one of my big passions in life and one of my favorite chapters in the book to write about for sure. I am so excited to try some of these recipes that you have in here because I wasn't expecting there to be really any recipes or anything easy for me to do like but there are things in here that are approachable like I could actually incorporate into my life so I was very appreciative of that and it was beautifully put together thank you yeah I think everyone has uh, you know there, there's this misconception that Japanese food is you know sushi or really kind of inaccessible or ingredients can be hard to get so in the book I really tried to focus on ingredients that you were more easily um, you know, people could kind of just pop down supermarket and get uh, and a lot of comfort food as well. So, so I hope, um, I hope you enjoy cooking the recipes when you get around. To it. Oh, I'm, I am definitely going to do some of them. I will let you know how they turn out. So there are some major concepts that you deal with in this book. You are talking about, in, in my view, when I was, you know, looking at the overarching theme of this book is acceptance and enjoying the journey. How would you describe uh, the overarching theme of this book? Definitely. I think it's about finding contentment and, and happiness. And I think a lot of that comes from taking things a little bit slower, taking time to appreciate the smaller moments. Um, I think some of the philosophies I cover in the book in particular are really reflective of this. Um, things like just taking the time to, you know, go walk in a forest, for example, and, and be in nature. A lot of these practices like flower ranging, they're not things you can rush. And because of that, it gives you the time and, and kind of space to, to reflect. And I think this is something that's so important. And I think we should really be doing more of. Of course, like we are bombarded by social media, by the news, by work emails. And to have that space, to create that space, to incorporate something into our life, you know, it doesn't have to be everything. It could be one particular focus. Like you were saying, one of your aunts was particularly focused on flower arranging or tea ceremony, or even just taking some of the, the practical things that you're talking about, like walking through a park and doing certain things to take note of what is happening in that moment. And centering yourself. Those are all things that are practical that you can actually do if you just choose one and you take that and you practice it, you know, once a week or when you have an opportunity to just take note like there was a passage in your book about if you don't have a park and you're walking through the city just to take a moment to feel like the breeze 
you know, those kinds of things where you can take from this book something and then incorporate it into your own life. I did appreciate that there were ways that you could take these different aspects and put them into your day. Definitely. And making the space for it, as you said, is so important. I think there is a lot of pressure on us to work through our lunch breaks or keep going all the time or always be on and actually seeing value in having that time for yourself and making space for those moments I think is is so important and something that I really hope that comes through in in the book. There's a theme that seems to be through life which is you know a lot of us feel like it's selfish to take care of ourselves because we have so many other responsibilities. We have a family to take care of. We have a job to go to. We have all these other things to do and to care for. And somehow a lot of us feel that it's selfish to take that time to ourselves and to make that space. Have you ever experienced that? Was that a, there ever a time in your life where you felt that you couldn't take the time to incorporate some of these practices? Definitely. I think when I first started working, uh, I mean, I was working at uh, digital agencies, and I think there's a massive culture in, in that kind of area of working a lot, being seen to be working, you know, working late hours, not having that work-life balance. And that time was, you know, probably some of you know, the hardest, toughest times in, in my life as a result. I think it was, you know, by taking a step back and focusing on what I wanted uh, in terms of my career, but also in terms of how, you know, my life sort of looked like and the quality of my life really. And making that space again, kind of, I think it was really, really helped me. And I think it's, it is, you can't really put a price on it. That was something that I struggled with for sure. Um, working as a lawyer, you are expected to work many hours, you know, upwards of 70 hours a week to get the job done. And we put ourselves to the wayside because there are so many responsibilities. And I think it's important. And I think what you wrote is important in this book because it puts the focus on creating time for ourselves. And it's not selfish. And you talk about that. It's not selfish to take care of yourself. It's essential. And you described a passage about your grandfather, although he, you know, maybe you could describe a little bit about the Japanese work culture and work ethic. And, and that might be a good place for us to start this conversation. Definitely. I think there is a lot of, you know, in the, in the book, I write a lot about mindfulness but also there's this um it's in stark contrast to this culture of really working long hours and working really really hard um my grandfather was you know uh you know fairly senior as a businessman and you know would also fall into that trap of you know working long hours and very late but I think over the years he he really was able to kind of carve that space for himself and and took care of himself. And ultimately, you know, the time you take to take care of yourself isn't time wasted. It's actually just adding to your productivity. Things like he loved having baths. So he'd, you know, sometimes come back home on his lunch break to have a bath. And, you know, it seems, you know, a little bit ridiculous, but actually, you know, at the end of it and having that space that, you know, that clarity, he was able to go back in and, and you know, be more productive and be more um, focused or in the zone. So it, it, it is all about 
you know, valuing yourself as much as your output. Um, I think that's something that uh, is is so vital. Yeah, it does improve your productivity. I mean, it's a pri- the priority is yourself, right? Like trying to take care of yourself, but an end result is you are more productive. And that's something that, you know, maybe if you're listening to this right now and you think that uh, you you don't have the time to take care of yourself and that you just have too much to do, too much on your plate, that if you do take that time to yourself and implement anything that's in this book, because it's more than just cooking and flower arranging and tea ceremonies, these are very practical things that you can incorporate into your life, then experience that increased productivity as an end result too. So maybe if, if the taking care of yourself isn't what is the impetus to get you started, maybe knowing that you'll be able to do things better in the rest of your life, maybe that'll be the impetus. And also, I think it's about, you know, not being too harsh on yourself or too drastic. I think, you know, things like, you know, your New Year's resolutions, they never stick because you suddenly decide on one day you're going to make one massive change. And it's not really about that. In the book, I uh, write about the concept of Kaizen, which is making small, tiny changes that over time lead to massive change. So that's really, I think, the best way to go around things. It's not its not just to suddenly have a stark changer or, you know, cut out coffee or carbs or whatever it is that you, you decide to limit yourself, but actually just to, you know, take it one day at a time. And your book is sprinkled with these beautiful Japanese words that express subtleties that we just can't express in the English language without, you know, 20 words. And they're broken down into one word in Japanese, which to me just shows the care and attention that these concepts have in the Japanese culture, that there is one word to express this feeling or this beautiful thing. So for instance, my my favorite word out of the book, it had to do with expressing the shimmering of moonlight on water. I think it was kawakari. Uh, Kawakari. Kawakari. Mm -hmm. That to me was probably the most beautiful expression out of the entire book, just because I, I love the picture, the imagery of what it describes. What's your favorite word? What What is the the one that sticks out to you that really resonates with you? I also love kawakari, actually. I think it's because, you know, you know exactly what it means uh, when, you, when you, you can picture it exactly. But as a foodie, I think one of my favorite words would have to be kuidaure, which means... Um, uh, going bankrupt from eating out too much. So, <laughs> too, so yeah, I think that's one of my, uh, that's one of my favorites. And as I was going through this book, I just saw so many wonderful different concepts. So I, I mean, we're not going to be able to talk about them all and I want you to go out and buy the book. So we're, we definitely want to, you know, give you like a taste of what is in this book. There was one thing that I really thought, and and I've heard this concept before, but I thought it mixed in really well with the theme that I got from this book, which was enjoying the journey and acceptance. And one of those was finding the beauty and imperfection. Can you tell me what that means to you? Definitely. So I think the the concept of wabi-sabi, which is kind of finding the beauty in imperfection is, you know, it's really a very much a, a worldview or a, a philosophy. 
Um, so the original meaning of the word um, wabi kind of uh, refers to the feeling of remote loneliness that comes with living in nature and sort of the, the paradoxical beauty of imperfection. So I think one of the ways it's really clearly shown in Japanese culture and practice is through uh, the art of kintsugi, which is repairing ceramics with gold. So, you know, these broken teacups are made even more beautiful because they're put back together again and, and you can see the cracks, but they're kind of laced with gold and it's almost more beautiful as a result of its flaws. Uh, and sabi uh, really depends on the context, but it can mean sort of withered or cooled but it can it really is evocative of the the beauty of aging so i think one of the ways uh, i really like to describe it is you know the beauty of you know leather over time you know it gets a bit worn and it gets a bit scratched but it gets softer and and more beautiful and kind of more full of stories and meaning um so those are that that whole concept, I think, of embracing things like aging and the passing of time and seeing it all kind of happen around you and being part of that, I think, is something that we don't really have just a word for, really, um, in English anyway. So definitely um, one of the, the uh, really big philosophy that I, I like to talk about in the book. I think I'm becoming more appreciative of that concept the older I get. Because not only, you know, am, am I becoming older, but also I, you know, you accumulate things over the years that you really don't need to accumulate. And the, the idea of taking something that you've loved, even if it has been cracked or if it's been broken and lovingly putting it back together so it creates even more meaning in your life rather than accumulating more things that maybe shiny and new, these other things that are aged and worn, they actually have more meaning, more significance to you, you know, in your daily life. And when you look at it, it tells a story. Definitely. I think, yeah. And, and that kind of storytelling and also just appreciating, taking a moment to take a step back and appreciating what you have, I think is something that I've been guilty of in the past of ignoring you know there's always something you need to be working towards or doing you know you always have a goal in sight but at the end of the day actually just whenever you are kind of wherever you are in your journey just remembering to kind of take a break and look around and be appreciative of the things that are there in front of you in that moment um, I think we don't do enough of that definitely and there was actually the whole section that you talked about this kintsugi putting together you know ceramics you know once they've been broken i am going to put that into use i'm going to find something i'm sure i will at some point and i'm going to use that because i just think it's so beautiful and it was such a great concept so thank you for sharing how to do it as well i think it's just such a beautiful metaphor as well um you know as a result when i was had finished publishing the book i actually someone reached out to me that i hadn't heard from in a while they were saying you know it would be nice to kind of um you know our, our friendship was something that we wanted to kind of work more on and i think you know that sort of kintsugi our our friendship and i was like oh that's such a lovely sort of metaphor and, and reaching out and I think it was uh, I think it's a really nice visual way to think about how things can become stronger and, and develop over time and you know the kind of shifting uh, sort of changing nature of things as well. Oh I like that that's really nice. I want to get into one of my favorite topics which is tea. I loved tea so much that when I created my first business it was all about tea 
I created an online boutique tea business just so that I could have an unlimited resource of tea in my home. So, <laughs> so it's going to be really fun. <laughs> I might have to do it myself. <laughs> I'll the London office. <laughs> yes. So I... Um, when I read this section, I mean, I knew there was going to have to be a section on tea in this book. So when I read it, I was excited about it. I even have my hoja cha tea next to me. I even have a pretty teacup just because I thought, you know, why not? That's part of the ritual, right? You know, um, but the whole concept of using tea in my mind as a mindfulness technique, the brewing, the aromas, the visuals, I mean, that to me is why I was so attracted to tea. You know, the the daily practice of sitting and having a cup of tea, you know, warming you up and taking those moments to yourselves is what really attracted me to it initially. And I wanted to find out what your attraction to tea was and, and a little bit about what you talk about in the book. Definitely. Well, you know, no, so obviously focus a lot on Japanese uh, culture in the book, but I'm also half English, so a massive tea drinker is uh, in my genes. Um, but I think, you know, tea, it's really not just about the kind of physical element. It is a lot about the philosophy behind it as well. I think it's so, you know, the word, the Japanese word for brown is chairo, which just means the color of tea. So <laughs> it uh, really indicates how how kind of tied it is sort of in, in culture. My aunt actually is a tea ceremony practitioner. So she's very advanced. I think if we are talking about it in sort of karate terms, she would be kind of a black belt in tea. But tea ceremony really is, you know, it's a kind of a performance. It's It's not just about pouring someone a cup of tea, but it's really symbolic of the relationship you have, not only with the person you're serving the tea to, but with your surroundings. So the passing of time, you know, what season it is, all these elements really kind of tie into the philosophy of tea ceremony. And there are kind of four core principles of tea, which is, you know, the official sort of tea ceremony, all practitioners, kind of apply these principles um, not only to tea ceremony but their daily lives as well so I think the four principles are sort of harmony um, respect purity and tranquility even when you have you know you take the time to have a cup of tea in your every you know you're in your morning or whatever I think those are it's just the four sort of beautiful concepts to think about I do love that you break down the major teas in Japan and there's some uh, lovely descriptions of tea ceremonies and how you can do this yourself. The tea ceremonies actually incorporate a lot of the other things that you talk about in this book. Like there were flower arranging and calligraphy and all of these other beautiful concepts are all incorporated. And I thought that was a really lovely touch that they, people involved in tea ceremony are thinking so much of the experience they want to create that they really want to touch on all these different areas that create some kind of peace or harmony within their ceremony. Definitely. Um, and yeah, it's such a, a beautiful practice as well. If you ever are in Japan, I definitely do um, recommend uh, anyone that's listening to kind of go to a tea ceremony because it's really unlike anything else. It's You try different types of tea, but 
it's you know served to you in a very kind of prescribed formulaic way i think you know there there are certain ways of serving it and and certain certain ways that the tea is mixed or prepared so it's it's just unlike anything else really but i yeah it's just so beautiful and yeah i think it's something that everyone should kind of experience at least once in their lives if they can one thing that i wanted to talk to you about was a concept that you mentioned to help you incorporate some of the things that you wanted to make sure that you were doing to continue to improve your daily life. And it was, I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing this right. Is it a diarize? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Can you explain how you use this? It sounded like you might have it on a board or a calendar or some sort of thing. Can you explain how you use that? Definitely. So I think this also comes through in the calligraphy chapter as well. But I think the practice of sort of writing things down or making a note or making lists of things, I think, first of all, it holds you accountable and makes sure you you incorporate whatever it is, whether it's these practices or or anything really into your life. Um, So this kind of physical act of it can really sort of help it stick in your brain. But I find, you know, I write, I write a lot of lists all the time. I spend some time every Sunday just taking a look at sort of my week ahead and putting it on this. So I've got a, a little, one of these sort of notice boards where you kind of put, I have you know, hundreds of letters and I just basically just slot in what I'm doing for the week and it really helps me kind of structure structure my day um, or my week. And having, um, you know, I have several lists and apps on my phone, things like Wonderlist. And I think having that kind of structure is something that really um, was really influenced, I think, by kind of my, you know, going to a Japanese school when I was younger. But yeah, I think it's because it can kind of seem a bit sort of rigid, but I think being able to set these kind of goals and take it sort of in the physical realm and kind of, you know, act upon it that way, I think is really um, something that I found incredibly useful and wanted to kind of bring through as well. I do like the idea of structure because it's so easy for us to let our day run away from us and to not notice the things that would be most helpful for us to grow in one area of our life or another. Uh, maybe we don't see blind spots, things that are happening in our in our lives. Can you explain a little bit about how, as you were saying that you were given a lot of structure, it sounds like in Japanese schooling, what kind of other things you do or that you have seen done to help structure your life in a way that helps you stay on track to not let your day get away from you? I mean, I think a lot of it is just to do with being really disciplined and strict with yourself. So what I was saying before, um, you know, as a rule, I try and have a lunch break every day and it seems so, you know, uh, so, so insignificant and a bit silly, but actually if I don't have that rule with myself, then I will just work through my lunch break and I will just let things get away with me. So it is about, um, sort of being strict and and holding yourself accountable, but also knowing um, what it is that you want. Uh, I think one of the chapters in my book, which is all about Ikigai, which is this concept of purpose, doing things with intention. I think that comes really naturally to people in Japan and part of their sort of culture and society. Um, I think a lot of people have attributed this kind of mindset really to, um, you know, how Japanese people particularly 
older people live for so long, it's because I think a lot of people find their identity or purpose through through work, or that's what we're told to believe. And so the minute you retire, society, I think sometimes might seem like that's your purpose is now ended. Whereas I think in Japan, the purpose is not just tied in with work, it's about your home life as well. It's about your family, but I think everyone, you know, knowing what it is for yourself, I think, um, and, and finding that can really help drive you. I think, yeah, discipline is definitely, definitely part of that as well. I think the time and the space that you create with the rituals that you talk about in your book will help people lead them to discover what it is they really value and where they want to make time for those particular things like community time with friends, time with family, feeling a certain way, like really getting in touch with how you want to feel. Do you want to feel rushed every day? Or do you want to feel as if you're doing everything with intention, with a purpose, rather than in a scatterbrained kind of way? So I think those kinds of concepts are ones that are helpful for just day-to-day life is just understanding what you want filling in the blanks with how you're going to get there and noticing, keeping track of what you're actually doing and where you can take away from those unnecessary things and then pay more attention to, bring more time to those things that are more valuable to you. Definitely. And I think these practices uh, really focus on mindfulness really help with that because otherwise, you know, if you set yourself these goals, but don't take the time to reflect on your progress it can run away with you and and you're not able to measure yourself or you're not able to compare with how you were so one of my aunts who is the tea ceremony practitioner actually she's been doing it for 25 years and i never even asked her before i started writing this book what her motivations were uh, you know behind taking it up as a as a hobby for her she she really needed it in her life. She said, I needed some time where I wasn't just an employee or I wasn't just a wife or I wasn't just a mother. I needed to feel like my own person, but also, you know, taking that time to be with myself and only focus on the practice of tea, but also the changing of seasons because because tea ceremony is so tied in with the changing of the seasons. Actually, you know, when she's in an office all day, it's hard with air conditioning and everything. It's hard to tell kind of what season it is, what year it is, whatever it might be, but actually having, forcing herself to have this time to practice mindfulness through tea, I think has given her so much happiness. I'm curious, do you have a meditation practice? I do. So I do a lot of um, yoga. I, also, I think my time I spend for myself, I do a lot of exercise. I do a lot of walking. Um, but because my grandfather, you know, because of his work in the temple elder, I think we always had this, you know, he taught me a lot of these sort of techniques and questions to ask myself before I'd kind of go to sleep. And I find that, you know, incredibly helpful. And I definitely do rely on it, especially you know, with work, uh, you know, so I, I write a lot about these kind of mindful practices in my book, but I work in digital and social media for charity. So it's, you know, always on and having to kind of, you know, all these push notifications all the time. And actually, I don't think I would be where I am without these practices and without taking that time. So yeah, I definitely, I definitely rely on it. But I, I think a lot of it also for me comes from the time I you spend preparing food. I think that, you know, that is, I, I do things like I make my own bread a lot. And I think uh, some, some of my friends are like, oh, but you know, you, you are so busy anyway. Why, why don't you just go buy some bread? And I was like, well, 
no, it's for me, I need that. I need to be making it because I need that time to myself. So that's your meditation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What kind of things would your grandfather teach you to ask yourself before you went to bed? Just things like, I think a lot of, especially sort of Shinto, you know, Buddhism really is about not only being in touch with yourself, but being in touch with kind of your ancestors or people that aren't there anymore and you know I'm not particularly in many ways I'm not a I'm not a religious person necessarily but I think there are ways of reflecting on the people that have been in your life and have gone whether they are kind of dead or alive I think visualizing yourself kind of having conversations with them I think can be incredibly helpful so that's the kind of thing that I think he he would you know we would kind of discuss and then talk about a lot so yeah it's more about you know where where we are in time and and I guess where even like kind of what season we were in and, and what thing what these kind of what elements of nature we would notice so things like you know in the chapter about forest bathing I talk about noticing these elements of nature things like the word komorebi which is the the light that filters through the leaves and you know whether I'd seen those and actually it's you wouldn't necessarily see that in winter of course because there are not going to be any leaves on the trees so that kind of thing that just um, you know elements of the nat your natural surroundings and and how how they're kind of linking up with your your mind and your mood some people use a question like you ask yourself a question before you go to bed and then you'll wake up and maybe you'll have had an answer to whatever it is that you wanted or what you're describing sounds like if you're having an issue or you're, you're feeling a particular feeling to kind of reconnect with someone who might be able to help you with that answer or to have a conversation with that person. Is that what you're describing? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I definitely think that's, that's right. And I think also kind of knowing your place in the kind of whole cycle of things. You're in a specific moment in a specific time and there are other things happening around you and actually connecting the kind of inside and outside so in the chapter about the Japanese home I write a lot about Japanese aesthetics in the home are really to do with bringing nature in so things like sort of wood and flowers and and things like that again it's all about I think the importance of connecting sort of us as humans with kind of like the natural world is definitely I think a massive kind of underlying theme that kind of runs through the book as well I love this this has been fantastic so I want to ask you to tell our listeners where they can find you I will link to everything in the show notes so nobody has to rush to write it down but if you could just tell us where they can connect with you Definitely. So I am active on Twitter and Instagram. Both handles are the same. It's Erin Nimi. Uh, so Nimi is my Japanese um, last name. And actually the characters mean new and beautiful. Uh, so I think in, in the introduction I wrote about, you know, how hopefully I can help you be a guide to all the kind of new and beautiful uh, Japanese practices that I write about in the book. Um, but I also uh, have a blog, which is Island Bell. So I-S-L-A-N-D and then Bell as in just B-E-L-L, like a ringing bell.co.uk. Uh, so I was curious, where did you get the name Island Bell for your, your page? It, originally my book, uh, my book, sorry, my blog um, was, you know, all about my life uh, living in London. You know, I had just moved here from New York and I wanted to 
update sort of friends and family as to what I was doing and what I was up to. And, and choosing a blog name was quite challenging. The characters of my name in, in Japanese, Erin, actually mean um, English bell. So bell like a ring, the bell of a sound. I didn't really feel like I was that name didn't really resonate with me as much but I've always kind of lived on an island so I've always lived in Japan or England or Manhattan so that's how it uh, oh, I like about, that really. okay well thank you so much for your time I really appreciate it this has been a lot of fun thanks so much for having me I really liked Erin she seemed very sweet and I highly recommend that you go check out her blog Island Bell because it is beautiful. I also want you to go buy Japanism. It is a beautiful book with some beautiful principles. I can't wait to try the recipes. They really do look delicious and they looked very simple, which is right up my alley. If you decide to implement anything that Erin has talked about today, or if you get Japanism, I would love to hear about it in the Facebook group. You can get the link to the group at dinacataldo.com forward slash episode six, along with all of the links mentioned. It will link to Japanism, Aaron's book, Aaron's blog, as well as the accountability roadmap and the Facebook group. So go there now and I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Soul Roadmap. If you have a moment, I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe, rate, and left an honest review on iTunes. I read every single review, so let me know what you want to hear more or less of, and I'll talk to you next week.